It's so good to be here. I came in from Los Angeles, and uh, today I want to first tell you what God did in my life 13 years ago, which I'm still in shock about. The fact that I'm even here telling you this story is very shocking to me still. And then I want to address some common questions surrounding this issue. So 13 years ago, I was a gay man living in Hollywood, and I was an atheist. But then I had this radical encounter with God that completely transformed my entire life in a split second. But let's start at the beginning. So when I was very young, probably fifth or sixth grade, I started to realize that I was attracted to the same sex. And that's a very disorienting thing to happen when you start to understand that. Especially back in the day when when I grew up in Dallas, Texas, as the youngest of eight kids in a, in a Roman Catholic family. And according to my peers, according to society at large, according to the, the church, my family, homosexuality was very much frowned upon, very taboo. And so it was this strange phenomenon of kind of having to lead this double life. Because internally, I was attracted to the same sex, but externally, I was very social in school. I was popular. I went steady with girls. And so I kind of had this deep, dark secret that I couldn't tell anyone until high school. I went to a Jesuit high school, all-boys school in Dallas. And when I was a junior, this is when things really started to ramp up because I, I met a guy in my high school and he was going through the same thing. He was same-sex attracted. And kind of a few months into our friendship, we were out at a nightclub in, in Dallas. I mean, I was 15, he was 14. I don't know how we got into these clubs. But uh, <laughs> we came out to each other. And that just that was like the floodgates just opened. And then we started to explore gay culture together in Dallas. And we went to gay bars almost every night. We went to clubs, nightclubs every night. And because I was making straight A's in school, my parents were, were kind of oblivious to what I would, they, they weren't really that concerned about me because I was the youngest, as I said, I was the youngest of eight kids. And by that time, by the time they got to me, they were just kind of checked out. And so my parents were, for better or for worse, they were very permissive with me. And so I remember the first time I, I walked into this club, this nightclub in Dallas that was designed by this famous French designer, Philippe Stark. And it was partially owned by Grace Jones and Stevie Nicks. And it was like this big deal. And I was, you know, 14 when I first walked in, 14, 15 and, I, you know, this club was a mix of people. It was, it was like Studio 54. It was like straight people, gay people, drag queens, you know, just the whole gamut of kind of misfits, right? And I remember walking into this club and hearing the music and seeing the people. And I was like, wow, like this, this is, these people get who I am. They, they get what I'm going through. These are my people. And I felt so at home there. And, and then 
when, when I went away to college, the same thing happened. I ended up becoming, my freshman year, I became best friends with somebody who was same-sex attracted, the same thing. And so I had, in high school and in college, I had these confidants and where we could talk about what we were going through and talk about, you know, secret feelings and, and explore gay culture together and, and go to bars. And, and, and so I was very active in that, in that world. And all the while... It was all top secret. I mean, I, w- I wasn't out to, any, to it, anyone except these people. And, and also, at the same time, I, I never thought of homosexuality as kind of a lifelong condition. I just thought, this is what I am feeling now, and I'm just going to go with what I'm feeling, my desires. The heart wants what it wants, as Emily Dickinson says. So I just, I just thought, you know, eventually I'll grow out of this and I'll get married to a woman and I'll have a family. And uh, that didn't really work out. So then after college, that, right after college was when homosexual behavior became my identity. And the way this happened is I moved, so my best friend and I from college moved to Tokyo uh, for a year after college, because both of us were, we had applied to grad schools. I, I applied to law school and a couple of grad schools, and I had gotten accepted, but I wasn't, I wasn't sold on it. I was like, I don't really, I don't even know what I want to do. He didn't know what he wanted to do, so we're like, let's go to Japan and figure it out. That's the place to, to figure it out. So we moved to Tokyo, and and what's interesting about Japan is I felt so far away from home, even though Japan was like 20 years behind socially on this issue, on homosexuality, it was very, very, very taboo in, in Japan. It's probably still, still is to, to a large degree, but very taboo. So all the gay bars in Tokyo were underground, very hush-hush. Like if you, if you came out as, if you were Japanese and you came out as gay, you were just a complete... Uh, shame to your family. And so, but about eight months into my time in Japan, my roommate, had, he, he had invited his friend from Texas to come visit us, this guy, Adam. And Adam came and he stayed with us for about five days. And by the fourth, kind of fifth day, suddenly Adam and I fell in love with each other. And and it was the first time I had ever felt that, that strong of a feeling, of a romantic feeling. And it was the first time, and then we got into a relationship, and it was, a, it was my first boyfriend. So that's when the identity of, of being gay was cemented and became, and I felt like, okay, this is who I am. This is who I, this is immutable. This is who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And I was happy about it. And, um, uh, and so I, that's when I just felt free to come out to, I came out to my family, I came out to my friend. My, actually, my sister had written me a letter while I was in Tokyo asking if I was gay because she had had her suspicions for a while. And I wrote her back this letter and explained, yes, I am, blah, blah, blah. And I, I detailed everything about my life. So, and I said, P.S., please don't tell mom and dad. I'll tell them when I get home. But of course, she immediately ran and told my parents. So, so by the time I got home to, to Dallas after living in Tokyo, my whole family knew. 
which I was actually kind of happy about because I didn't, she did all the heavy lifting for me. I didn't have to be like, mom, dad, I have something to tell you. But what's, what's really interesting when I got back, my parents' reaction was so amazing, so lovely. My parents were committed, committed Christians and they believed that homosexual behavior was a sin. And, and, but when, I, when they found out, the, the, day, the night after I got back from Tokyo, I walked into my parents' kitchen and my mother was sitting at the table and she, she started crying. And I knew why she was crying. And my mother and I were super close, which is probably sort of the reason um, things turned out the way they did. But I, um, there are other factors. But I, I knew, and I, and I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she said, you know, I, well, I heard you're homosexual. And, and, I, and I tried to just allay her fears. And I said, Mom, it's not a big deal. This is just who I am. And she was very, I mean, rightfully so. She was very afraid of, of me getting HIV or AIDS. Because at the time, it was a death sentence. This was in 1993. Three, I believe, and it was it was a death sentence. So I was terrified of that, and she was too. And so she was really upset about that. <clears throat> and then the next day, my father came up to me and he said, "Hey, Beck, you know, I heard you're homosexual." And um, and my my dad was like a man's man, you know. He was like, and so he said, uh, "Did I do anything wrong as a father?" And he listed off a few things that he could have, you know, done wrong. And I said, no, dad, it's not your fault uh, that you never gave me any affection. No, I I didn't say that to him. I said, no, dad, (laughs) it's not your fault. This is just who I am. And it's not a big deal. And I, again, I just tried to, to to just kind of play it off as not a big deal. And so shortly after that, I decided to forego grad schools. I was like, I don't want to do law school. I don't want to do these other schools. I just want to moved to Los Angeles and pursue writing and acting, which is a terrible idea. Don't ever do it. And so when I got, what I ended up doing, you know, acting, I ended up doing really well in commercials. I acted in a ton of national commercials and, and I sold a couple of TV show, TV pilots, but never, that never went to series. So it was always kind of a struggling actor writer and it was stressful but then I ended up becoming a production designer. Uh, I kind of fell into it. And that's what I ended up doing for the next, you know, that was basically my main career in Los Angeles, a set designer in the fashion world. So I would do set design for, for Vogue, for photo shoots, for Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, for, for, you know, YSL, for Nike, for Gap, you know, all these brands, L'Oreal. Like I would do, and I would work with, you know, all these celebrities with Oprah and with uh, Katy Perry and, and all these people. I worked with every actress and George Clooney and Julie Roberts. And that was my career in LA for the, for the most part. And when I moved to LA, I immediately got into this really fun group of friends. And they were all from the East Coast, from Ivy League schools. They were all super smart, ambitious, hilarious. And they were all... They were all writers, actors, producers, directors. And we all wanted the same things. We all wanted three things in life. We wanted to make it big in Hollywood, to find true love. And I spent 
year, I, I went cycled through, I think, five serious relationships lit with live-in boyfriends. And our, the third thing we wanted was to have extraordinary experiences. And we were doing that in spades because every week, because we were all in the business, especially they, my friends were in the business, we were invited every week to movie premieres, um, big you know, movies. And to every award show, the Oscars, the Emmys, the Golden Globes, the Grammys, the after part, the Governor's Ball after the Oscars, the, where I had dinner with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and, uh, and all these people. And, and to the HBO parties, the Vanity Fair parties, I was always invited to these parties. And so we, we were, we're kind of, you know, that's what, I just thought this is what, this is what life is all about, having these amazing experiences having a boyfriend, you know, doing well in a career. Like, this is what it's all about. And for a long time, that, that was, you know, and I was having these other just crazy things would happen. You know, I would, I would find myself at Prince's house, the, the singer Prince, with, at, with a small gathering of people at his house in Beverly Hills where he performed a concert for three hours. And, and and then I would you know I was I would hang out at Paris Hilton's house and went to her engagement party and I just all these things were constantly happening and and my friends in that group of friends those friends would were I would watch just every month another person would become suddenly super successful like they just sold a huge screenplay to you know Warner Brothers or like for example Minnie Driver was a, an actress. She was really close friends with me and we were, she was an actress and she was kind of a sort of a no-name actress. And then she did Goodwill Hunting with Matt Damon and, and then exploded. And so I went through all that with Minnie. And then like Mariska Hargitay was a very, very close. I was her, I was her best gay, as she would call me. We were very, very close, and, and I drove her, actually, to her audition for, for Law & Order Special Victims Unit, and she got the part, and she's the, the star of the show, and she's been doing it for 24 years, so I think she owes me some royalties after all that, but we're still very close, Mariska and I. But, so I was having all these, so I, 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 all these shiny objects were just in my life, right? And I was having a really great time and I had great friends. But then after years and years of doing this, I don't know, from 1993 to 2009, I don't know how many years that is. Um, who's good at math? Anyway, you can, you can calculate it. But for that many years, I, I, but then the law of diminishing returns started to set in. And, and I got to a point where I was like, is that all there is? Is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? And I, I just felt like, you know, the weight of sort of needing to know my telos, needing to know the purpose of my life was really weighing heavily on me. Like, where did I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? You know, everyone wants to know that, right? And, and it really started to weigh on me. And I, I looked for meaning and purpose in, in different places, especially in art. I, art was kind of my religion. So whenever I would go to New York or Paris or London, I would go to museums like every, I mean, MoMA in New York was like my temple, right? And like, 
the Centre Pompidou in Paris was another temple of mine. But I would go to these museums and, and just consume art. And, and that was, to me, that was kind of giving me this sense of meaning. Um, it, but it was a very kind of uh, ephemeral sense of meaning. And then also I would go to these really serious plays in New York and London. Every, night, every, every time I was there, I would go to a play almost every night by Ibsen or, or Harold Pinter or Tom Stoppard or Eugene O'Neill or Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, which is a six-hour play. And I thought, you know, these guys are so smart, these playwrights. They've got, they've got to know kind of the, 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 the meaning of life, the purpose of life. I've, like, I'm going to glean that from, from these plays. And I remember every time I would leave the theater, I would just leave frustrated because I felt like oh, it got so close to getting to something true and then it just kind of evaporated. So I would leave frustrated and disappointed and I knew, I, I knew God was, I knew Christianity was never an option for me because I was gay. So I was like, okay, God's not an option. That's off the table. And by the way, my friend, none of my friends, we never once said the word God to each other. Not once. We never said, do you believe God exists? Not once. It was just assumed that God didn't exist and that the Bible was a, a myth, an ancient myth like any other ancient myth. We didn't even have to talk about it. So Christianity was never an option for me. And then a major turning point happened in March of 2009. I was at Paris Fashion Week, and I used to go to Fashion Weeks in New York and Paris a lot. I was always invited to those. And, and that particular season, I got in Paris, I'd gone to a bunch of the shows the runway shows, and then most of the shows have after parties. And so I was at an after party uh, in, at this, in the middle of Paris at this club called Regime. And I remember having this moment of, I kind of had a meltdown. I was sitting with Rachel Zoe and her husband, Roger. Rachel Zoe was a, she's a fashion kind of girl who had her own TV show on Bravo. And I remember looking out, Everyone from the fashion world was there. Kanye West was there, everyone. And I just remember looking out and people were dancing, drinking champagne. And I, was, I had a glass of champagne and I was looking out at the dance floor and at the club and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like this, this is not gonna sustain me anymore. Like this has sustained me for all these years since I was in high school. But... I don't, it's not going to, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I can't keep doing this. Like I've done this for so many years and yeah, it was, it's, it's fun, but it's not, well, it's not fulfilling. And so I was in a panic. I ghosted the party, went back to my hotel. I was up all night and just in a panic about my future. Like, what am I going to do? Be put out to pasture in Palm Springs? Like, where do I go now? And and so I got back to LA a couple of days later, got um, busy with work again and kind of forgot about that night. And then cut to six months later, I was at a coffee shop with my best friend who was gay. 
and we were chatting and our, we, every Sunday was our, every weekend was, we did the same ritual. We would go to brunch in Venice at this amazing cafe. And then we would drive across town to Beverly Hills or West Hollywood and go shopping, which is gay church brunch and shopping. And then we would go to this coffee shop called Intelligentsia and hang out all afternoon on the east side of LA. And that day we were there, we were drinking coffee, cappuccinos, whatever. And suddenly we look over and (laughs) to our shock and horror, there's a table next to us with five young people with five Bibles on the table, physical Bibles. I had never seen a Bible in public in LA before. And neither had my friend. My friend was culturally Jewish. He grew up in New York. He was, I mean, this was a shock to us. And we looked at each other and we're like, what is going on? What are they doing? And my friend liked to kind of engage in sort of controversial conversation. So he said, talk to them, ask them what they're doing. So it's like a Christian's fantasy come true, like a, a gay atheist turning to them and saying, hey, are you guys Christians? What's the gospel? That's literally actually what I said to them. I said, are you guys Christians? And, and what do you believe? Because, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic. I don't even remember, like, what, what do you believe? And they said, oh, we're evangelical Christians. Um, and they told me the gospel. They were very capable. And they knew, they, they were well-versed in, in, in scripture. And they explained what they believed. We talked for like an hour. And then, of course, and they, they, they had mentioned that they, they went to a church in Hollywood on, on Sunset Boulevard called Reality LA, LA. And so, of course, I get to the $64,000 question. And I say, well, what does your church believe about homosexuality? And they said, well, we believe it's a sin. Just very matter of factly. And, and I wasn't surprised at their answer. I, I expected them to say that. Um, Today, I don't think, I don't know if that would be an expectation for Christians to say that necessarily, but back in 2009, I expected them to say that. What I was surprised at was my response, because a year before that, or 10 years before that, I would have been like, you guys are insane, I'm leaving now, but nice knowing you. But because of that night six months before in Paris, I was open to hearing something new. And I thought, what if God does exist? I mean, there's a slim chance he exists. And what if homosexual behavior is a sin? And what if I've built my entire life on a false foundation and I don't know it? I mean, that, that is a possibility. Although slim, it is a possibility. And so they invited me to their church the following Sunday. And I said, look, I don't know. I'll think about it. And it was a kind of a weird, awkward moment because I didn't want my friend to think that I was going to go to their church and it was just embarrassing. And so I, I had the whole week to think it through and I was kind of going back and forth on it. And I, so the, the next Sunday rolls around, I wake up, I'm like, I guess I'm going to go to church today. I've, I've never been to an evangelical church. I guess I'll try, I'll do this. So I drive to this high school auditorium where the church meets. And I walk in and I immediately hear Christian worship music. And I, I, had, I hadn't heard that, I don't even know, like in decades and decades. And so 
I just was like, oh, I forgot Christian music existed. Ooh, like it's, and I kind of cringed, right? But then I was like, wait, it's actually nice. It's beautiful. And, and then I sat, I, t- I sat by myself on the fourth row on the aisle and the pastor comes out and he's preaching. He's in the middle of a sermon series on Romans, a two hour, I mean, two year, he's two year series through Romans, expository preaching. And he's that day he was on Romans chapter seven and he comes out and he starts preaching for an hour. And as he's preaching, I'm starting to, things are starting to kind of click in, in my mind. And I'm, I'm just like riveted to, I'm literally sitting on the edge of my seat, riveted to the sermon. And every word, every word that he's saying, every sentence that he's saying starts to resonate as truth in my mind and my heart. And I'm like, what is going on? And it was, it was the first time I had heard and understood the gospel in my life. And I was like, this is the gospel? This is good news. It turned everything I thought religion was on its head. And I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And after the sermon, he left the stage. But before he said, you know, there's people on the sides of the auditorium if you want prayer for anything. And that was another moment where I was like, do I go over there? If I do, people that invited me here might be watching me. It's embarrassing. And, but I was like, whatever, I'm going to go over there. So there's another 30 minutes of worship music, right? And so I, I walk over to the side of the auditorium. I go up to this guy, again, a Christian's fantasy come true. And I'm like, hey, I don't know what I believe, but I'm here. And he said, okay, let me pray for you. And he laid hands on me when that was still legal in California. And he prayed for me. And I was like, how does this random straight dude care about me so much? Because his prayer was so loving and, and it... it yeah, it just felt so loving to me. And I, he, he finished, I thanked him. I went back to my seat. As soon as I sat down, I sat down, everyone else was standing and worshiping for the next 25 minutes. I sit down, as soon as I sit down, the Holy Spirit just goes, and I was like, and it was like a road to Damascus moment. And I just, God in that moment revealed himself to me. And, he, and in my mind, God said, I'm God, Jesus is my son, heaven is real, hell is real, the Bible's true, welcome to my kingdom. And I was like, <gasps> I started, and then it was like Isaiah in the temple when he sees the holiness of God and he comes undone. I started bawling harder than I had ever cried since I was an infant, which made sense because I was just born again in that moment. And I was doubled over heaving for 25 minutes, just crying and crying. And I was crying over the conviction of sin and over the joy of meeting the king of the universe, Jesus, and finally knowing the meaning of life. It was like the curtains had parted and I could see the truth for the first time in my life. And I was like, this is real? Like this whole thing is real? And it was such an amazing encounter with God. And then after the service, I got home, got into, and I got into bed to take a nap and it happened again. God, it's like Moses when he's in the cleft of the rock and God passes by with his glory. God's like, let me show you some more of my glory. And I was just like, whoa, God. And I just burst into tears and jumped out of my bed in the middle of my bedroom. I said, God, you have my whole life. I'm yours. I'm done. 
And I knew in that moment that homosexual behavior was a sin. I knew that it was no longer my identity. I knew that it was dating guys was no longer part of my future, but I didn't care because I had just met Jesus. And I'm like, I'm going with that guy. Good riddance to that life. And that was September 20th, 2009. And uh, I'm eternally grateful to God. (laughs) (laughs) Praise God. And I think of, because, you know, over the years, I've, I've, I've lost a lot. I've lost a lot of, I lost most of my friends, my, my, my close, close group of friends. I lost, I lost my career. Um, but I think of Paul in, in Philippians 3.8, when he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so I want to turn to some, some common questions I get surrounding this issue. And the first one is, how do you respond to the idea that maybe God created you gay and you're just, you're just being who God created you to be? In other words, are you born gay? And I always say, just because Lady Gaga says you're born gay doesn't mean it's true. She's not a scientist. Um, and so there are, there are three general theories about why a person is same-sex attracted. And one is, genet- one is a genetic theory, one is hormonal in utero, and the third is environmental. So, you know, your mother, your father, whatever. And it could be any of those things. It could be a combination of those things. No, one, no scientist worth his or her salt knows the answers to that question. But it, it's a moot point. It doesn't matter. Because we're because of the fall and the doctrine of total depravity, we're all we're corrupted. All of us, our mind, our body, our spirit, we're all we're completely corrupted. So even our genetic coding is corrupted. So it doesn't. So if a scientist, if the New York Times had a headline, you know, scientist discovers gay gene, I would say, so what? <laughs> because it, it, there's genetic defects, right? So so there, it's a, again, it's a moot point. Because um, we're all, as every human being is born with sinful impulses, right? It doesn't, not just homosexuality, it was all kinds of sinful impulses. It doesn't mean we act upon those impulses. And so that's a moot point, whether you're born gay or not. And the second question I get a lot is, can you be gay and Christian? And um, when I say, can you be gay and Christian? When I say the word gay, I mean can you engage in homosexual behavior and, and be Christian? And I, I want to turn to, well, first of all, this, this, this sin issue is, I, I call it the same but different. In my book, I, I, I kind of go do this section of how this sin is the same as other sins, but it's different. Because there's gay pride parades, but there's not greed pride parades. So it's become, in our culture now, this, this has become so strongly tied to identity. So it's very difficult to unravel this. But I just want to read First John with regards to can you be gay and Christian? Um, and he says, I'm going to read a couple passages, a couple of verses. He says, 
No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And then he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning, notice practice of sinning. He's, it's an ongoing, unrepentant concept, idea. No one who makes a practice of sinning is of the, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And so, um, and no one, yeah, I just did set that one. So, so yeah, and then in Hebrews 10, I mean, there's so many verses in the New Testament about this, but um, Hebrews 10, chapter 11, the writer says, uh, the writer says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So, you, so it's impossible. Being a gay Christian is a square circle. It's an impossibility. And I know that there's some people who, who are, at, quote, ex-gays. I don't even use, like using that term. But there are people who are ex-gays, who are Christians, who still, and they believe in the biblical sexual ethic. They believe that marriage is between one man, one woman. But they still call themselves gay Christians or queer Christians which is, I think is the most bizarre thing ever because I'm a new creation in Christ. My old man has passed away. Why would I identify with a sin? Why would I call myself a gay Christian? That's like the sacred and profane together. It's like, would you call yourself an adulterous Christian or a greedy Christian? Or, you know, so why are gossiping Christian? No, like I'm just a Christian. I'm not a gay Christian. That. That's something, that's a moniker that I don't even want to associate with. That, that's, I don't ever want to go back to Egypt <laughs> and be in bondage. I was in bondage for, I thought I was sexually liberated for 20 plus years. I was in bondage. And praise God, he, re, he rescued me out of that bondage. And then another question I get is, isn't it unfair that you have to be single for the rest of your, isn't it unfair that you can't have a partner in your life? And, if, and or isn't it unfair that you have to be alone for the rest of your life? And I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not alone. I have the most amazing relationship with the king of the universe, Jesus. And, I, and I've, never, I've never once in the past 13 years, not once, not for a split second, I've never felt like I've been, I'm being cheated out of something or that I've never had an ounce of self-pity because I'm in the kingdom of God. I have eternal life, you know, which is kind of a big deal. It's sort of like amazing, right? Immortality. Um, so I've never felt, in fact, I felt the opposite. I felt like I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I don't believe in luck, but you know what I mean. I, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. And what's unfair is that Jesus had to be tortured, beaten, and crucified for my sins. That's unfair. My life is, is amazing because I'm in Christ. So uh, I, I, I definitely don't feel life is unfair. And I think of Paul you know, Paul running around the Mediterranean, planting churches and all that he went through. <clears throat> and in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Now, do you think Paul thought his life was unfair? <laughs> no, all Paul cared about, he wasn't navel gazing. He didn't care. All he cared about was getting the gospel out to the nations. That's all he cared about. And so, I, yeah, I, I don't feel like life is unfair. And then another question I get is, doesn't God want you to be happy? Well, first of all, happiness is overrated. It's fleeting. Happiness is based on your circumstances. And when I, before I was a Christian, my happiness was all, always based on, is my career going well? Is, you know, do I have a boyfriend? Am I in a relationship? And it, my happiness was all just fluctuating all over the place. And I was you know, up and down. It was like a roller coaster ride. But Jesus gives us joy. This joy. And I feel like I have this kind of layer of rock in my gut, like an impenetrable, impenetrable layer that no matter what, what my, no matter what my circumstances are, I still have joy. It doesn't matter if I'm having a hard day or difficult month or whatever, because, you know, life is, life is harsh. Life is stressful, right? I mean, so, but when you have Christ, when you're in Christ, it's like that joy overrides, it, it, it overrides the, the bumps of life. And I mean, those bumps are still there and they're difficult, but that joy is permanent. And it's not based on circumstances. In my, in, in, before I was a Christian, all, everything was quid, quid pro quo. In my relationships with guys, it was always like, as long as you have a good career and I have great abs, we're good to go, right? So you're always walking on eggshells, you know, especially two, two men together, right? It's like, it was all very um, superficial. And so, so that, that becomes exhausting. But now I have this peace and joy in Christ that will never... Go. And by the way, I mean, Jesus doesn't promise happiness. In fact, he, the New Testament promises the, the opposite. It's like, we're going to go through trials. We're going to suffer. We're going you know, to have toil and hardship. And, you know, all the apostles were martyred, except John, who was sunbathing on the island of Patmos and writing in the book of Revelation. You know, so it's like, we're never promised happiness. Um, we're, we're promised the opposite. Uh, if we're followers of Christ, it's not, it's not an easy thing, but it's, it's infinitely worth it. And, um, and then some people ask, you know, are you still, do you still struggle with same-sex attraction? Are you still same-sex attracted? And when people ask me that, I, I just want to say, well, do you still struggle with indwelling sin? Um, but I mean, the truth is, I, there are still remnants, vestiges of same-sex attraction that I, I experience now and again, but there, it's very minimal. Before I was a Christian, my thought life was dominated by sexuality. And now I rarely think about it. Of course, Satan's listening, and he's like, oh. But so I rebuke Satan. Um, 
but I rarely think about it. And, and, and when I do, it's like, what am I desiring in that moment? What am I, I, I go to God, I go to the Lord and I'm like, God, what I want right now is intimacy. And I know that that thing out there is not gonna give me real intimacy. You are. So please fill me with your spirit right now or give me that, in, that in, intimacy. And he does. And that, and that feeling or that temptation just kind of goes away. And, and then some people ask, isn't it unloving to believe that homosexual behavior is wrong? Isn't it unloving not to ally with the LGBTQ community? And it's, the thing is, I was so happy. I was so grateful to those kids who told me that homosexual behavior was a sin when I first talked, those young Christians. Because that's the most loving thing you can do is to tell someone the truth. If you tell someone that it's, that it's not a sin, that it's no big, oh, don't worry about it, it you know, the Bible just whispers that you, who knows, like who can ever know, like the, then that you're you're allowing someone go, to go down a path of destruction, eternal destruction. Like that's that's the most unloving thing you can do. Of course, you need to say these things with grace, but grace and truth always have to be together. Jesus was a master of this in the in the Gospels. If you watch how he interacts with people, he always balances grace and truth perfectly. And, but we have to, to be loving to someone, you have to tell them the truth and say, yeah, you know, I love you and I, I, I'm here for you, but yes, this is, this is sinful. And, and um, you know, I want, I kind of want you to be in eternity with me. So like, yeah, be, it's, it's loving to tell the truth. And then, I just want to talk about the lies of the culture and how they influence the church. And because I used to believe these lies, I, used to, I believed all of the lies for many, many years. I believed them. And in fact, I wrote the, the two TV pilots I wrote were gay themed. And, and we have to, as, as, as Christians, we have to be aware of what's happening because all the content that is on Netflix or on TV, all the content you're, that people are imbibing is coming from a dark place because it's, it's, the writers and creators of those shows are not Christians. So they're in the dark. So their writing is coming from the dark. And so when you're, when you're watching those shows, you're, 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 in, you're listening or you're watching uh, essentially, explicitly or implicitly, you're watching lies. <clears throat> and it all comes a, from a secular humanist point of view. It's a diff- completely different worldview from a biblical worldview. So I always say, if you've watched Netflix for an hour, you've just been lied to. So now you need to read the Bible for an hour to renew your mind and, know, and remember the truth. And it's true. If, if we're not in the word of God, if you, we're either giving into the pressure of the word or to the pressure of the world. We're never just neutral, like, especially now in our culture. We're never just in neutral. We're, there's always, we're being shaped by the world or by the word. And I just want to 
I just have a few final thoughts on, on this subject. Um, this is nothing new, this, what's going on in culture right now. The, Satan has been lying since the garden. He's been twisting God's word since the garden. Saying, you know, he asked Eve, well, didn't God, did God really say that you can't do? And he's doing the same thing now with, with the revisionist kind of uh, who, who are twisting scripture. He's saying, did God really say homosexuality is a sin? I mean, who can know? Like the Bible whispers it. And, you know, there's only a, Jesus never talked about it, right? Which is not true. But Jesus never talked about it. And I mean, so this is, Satan is thrilled that he's got an entire culture deceived. He's laughing his head, he's laughing his way all the way to the bank. He's thrilled. He's winning this battle right now, but he's not going to win the war. We know what happens at the end, but we have to be aware of, say, this is a spiritual battle. We have to be aware of what's going on in the spiritual realm and how this is affecting us now in our culture. And, and I always say, you know, we can have endless debates about like, oh, gee, I don't know if this is a sin or not. Like, who knows, you know, who knows? And or is that what, but is that what you want to do for the rest of your life is have endless debates about this issue? Or do you, do you just want to submit to the word of God, the authority of scripture? And, and I'm, I have a friend who says, you know, he's Chinese American. And he's like, if the Bible said all Chinese Americans have to stand on their head for eight hours a day, I would do it. And that's how I feel. I feel the same way. It's like, what? I'm not trying to argue with God. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm submitting to his word. I don't care what it says. And I actually like that. I find joy in obedience. And I, I love the fact that because before I was a Christian, I lived in a postmodern world where everything was like subjective. There was no real truth. You didn't know what was right or wrong. I love knowing what the boundaries are now. I like having guardrails. I, it's like a, a kid having parents who give them guardrails and who give them boundaries. And you feel secure and safe in that. So I feel very secure with my heavenly father. And I love being obedient to God. And I always tell this to kids, that young, young people, that the world is going to lie to you for the rest of your natural life. And you can either believe the lies of the world, which leads to destruction, or believe the word of God, which leads to life. It's that simple. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all going to meet Christ face to face. We're going we're gonna to face him. And he's going to either say, well done, my good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. Those are, those are haunting words. And those are the two options. And it's a reality. And I just want to close with two quick verses from Scripture. Paul's, Paul wrote to Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And that's what's happening now. People have itching ears to, uh, to, to make this sin not a sin, which is just bizarre to me why people would, would tamper with God's word. And then Matthew 
I'll just end with this. Matthew says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by, enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for these people, Lord. Thank you, God, for your mercy, your salvation, your grace, your truth. Thank you that your word is, is inerrant, that it's authoritative, that it's true. Thank you for rescuing us, God, out of darkness and bringing us into your marvelous light. And I pray for families here who are dealing with this issue in their family. I pray that you would give them wisdom, patience, grace, endurance, perseverance, and prayer. And I pray for anyone here who's struggling with this issue, that, God, that you would give them, um, you would set the captives free, Lord, that you would just draw them to yourself and, and just as you did with me, just fill them with yourself and satisfy them fully with you, Lord, and help them to see how living a life of homosexuality is so uh, empty and how much better you are than that, how, how amazing you are, God. So I pray that over anyone who's struggling with this, Lord, and um, we thank you for this time, God, and we love you and we bless you in Jesus' name, amen.